You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today's reading um, will will come from Isaiah chapter 65, verses uh, 17 through 25, and it is found on page 624 in the Bibles on the back of of the pews. Um, If you do not have a Bible, please take one as our gift to you. Hear now the word of the Lord. For behold, I, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that I, in, in, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall shall be heard in no more shall be heard in it the the, the sound of weeping and, and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an, an infant who lives but a few days, or or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall shall die a, a hundred years old, and, and the sinner a, a hundred years old shall be accursed. They, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They, they shall plant vineyards and, and eat their fruit. They, they shall not build um, and another in, inhabit. They, they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of... For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they, they call, I will answer. While they are yet asking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. You can find it on page 886 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. One more time. Good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan, and I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. By way of orientation, today is the third Sunday in the season of Advent. Society says that Christmas began in September, or maybe August, if you were in Target. The church says Christmas is not yet here. Society says Christ will never return. The church says he's at the door. He has lifted the latch. Society and the church are like two old folks sitting on the porch in the dark. And one of them says, it's dark, therefore it must be seven or eight o'clock at night. You got the whole night ahead of you. The other says, it's dark. It's 5 a.m. and sunrise is right around the corner. You can both agree it's dark outside, but we disagree on what time it is. That's a bit of what it's like to practice the biblical counter-narrative. All human beings are trying to answer the question, what story am I in? And all human beings are a bit like characters in a play in this respect. As Walt Whitman penned in his famous poem, O Me, O Life, the powerful play goes on and you might contribute a verse. So what verse does your life contribute to the great drama of existence? Even more difficult, what verse ought your life to contribute to the great drama? You know, not all verses are the same and not all verses are good contributions. Some are poorly written, some are out of sync with the verses around them, some are just lies, right? So what story are you in and what verse ought your life to contribute? These are Advent questions. These are questions about what has come before and what comes after. These are questions about what time it is. And there are many competing stories within which we might swim and float along, but the biblical story offers this comprehensive story with tremendous explanatory power within which to understand yourself and each other and the world. And you might be the kind of person here this morning that does not yet believe the biblical story to be true. And if that's you, welcome, glad you're here. But you must admit that there are not any other stories that claim to be the kind of universal story of history from beginning to end that the biblical story claims to be. And so the invitation of the biblical story is not like Wikipedia, to be consulted whenever you have a quick question and you kind of want the Christian take on the matter that the biblical story is more like a moving train onto which you may jump and find that it is carrying you along to a destination. Last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, we talked about what it means to inhabit the story. And then last week we talked about what it means to proclaim the story. This week, what it means to confess the story. As we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to examine the gospel lesson from John chapter 1, 19 through 28. First, let's set the scene. It's first century in the Middle East. The Jewish people are living in occupied territory under the Roman Empire. John the Baptist is on the scene. 
He has emerged from the wilderness looking every bit the form and figure of an Old Testament prophet. Clothes made of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, his food is locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist is a person. He is a personality. There is nobody like him. And he is getting a lot of attention. His main superpower, though, is his voice. He is a man on fire with a message. He's calling people to repent and to be baptized in the Jordan River. People are responding. It is a full-on revival, and revivals call attention to themselves. So some higher-ups from Jerusalem send delegates to find out what on earth is going on over there. They show up, and they ask John, who are you? Which is just so wonderfully direct. And sometimes it's hard to hear tone of voice in the Bible. And so let's just use our imaginations together for a moment. These guys show up and they look at John and they're like, who are you? (laughs) What are you doing? It seems like there's some assumption behind the question. This guy seems like he might be a Messiah, God's Christ. And remember, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a title, God's deliverer, God's savior. Verse 20 of the text tells us that John confessed, did not deny, but confessed. It's interesting using that word confessed twice. He says, I'm not the Christ. And this must have been very disappointing for the delegates. No doubt there were many who were ready to follow John as the Messiah. So they ask a couple follow-up questions. Okay, you're not the Christ. Are you Elijah? And that might seem like a really strange follow-up question for us. That is not the follow-up question we would ask. But These are folks that are well-versed in the Old Testament, and they are thinking of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which talks about how one day God would send Elijah to return to earth to pronounce doom and judgment in the day of the Lord's wrath. Now, we got to do a quick kind of excursus into Old Testament history here. John answers this question in the negative, no, which is interesting because later Jesus is going to say to his disciples, if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah. So which one of them is right? Is John right about his identity or is Jesus right about his identity? They're both right in a sense. John, or sorry, Elijah is one of the Old Testament prophets who did not die a physical death, but was taken into the spiritual realm by God while he was still living. Fascinating story, okay? Don't have time to unpack that. We can circle back to that one later. John was conceived between Zechariah and Elizabeth. And John like grew up knowing his parents. So he knows that he's, not biologically, genetically, Elijah. And so when Jesus calls John Elijah, he's not talking about genetics. He's talking about the role that the two men have played for the people of God. There is Elijah, the man, and then there's Elijah, the title, the role. Okay, third follow, or next follow-up question from these delegates. Are you the prophet? And if you have the Bible still open in front of you, you'll notice that word prophet is capitalized. It's a very particular thing they're asking here. Are you the prophet? They have in mind Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses predicted that God would send a prophet like him, like Moses, to teach God's people. And again, John answers in the negative. He is not there to teach. So in summary, here are basically the three questions these delegates asked. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Or are you the prophet? Are you a savior? Are you here to deliver judgment? Or are you here to teach? And across the board, John answers in the negative, categorically, no. And so just think with me for a moment. Here we see the tendency for people to resist any new categories, especially new categories in faith, in spirituality, and insist on fitting people and in fitting the work of God into their pre-existing categories. We're going to circle back to that theme later in a few minutes. 
So these guys keep pressing John and they say, okay, give us an answer to take back to the people who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Okay, fine. You don't fit into our categories. You tell us who you are. And John quotes from a different Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And these guys aren't sure what to make of this. And we know that because they don't actually respond to what John says. Instead, they just ask another question, which is kind of a change in subject. Sometimes the honest answer doesn't really seem to answer the question. So they ask, why are you baptizing them? You can sort of sense their confusion. Baptism was already an accepted practice for Jews in the first century, and it was typically used in two situations. One, baptism was something that a Gentile would undergo in order to convert to Judaism. Two, baptism was something that a bride would undergo after engagement and before marriage in order to symbolically purify herself for her husband. So for a Jewish maiden who was recently betrothed, baptism would mark her change in status from being the daughter of her father to being the wife of her husband. Where before her primary concern was to please her father, now her primary concern is to please her husband. She's no longer simply a daughter, now she's a wife, and that's what baptism would signify for her. So baptism in a first century Jewish context was a sign of preparation, either preparation for conversion or a sign of preparation for a bride getting ready for her husband. So a sign of preparation, that's, that's the role, that's like what baptism symbolizes in a first century Jewish context. This is why the delegates are asking him, why are you baptizing these people? In other words, what are you getting them ready for? They're not Gentile converts. They're already part of the people of God. They're not brides preparing for a groom. Or are they? It's a deep mystery taking place here that does not fit into anybody's pre-existing categories. The Jews will discover later on that their heritage and the observance of the law is not enough. And it's actually, if you pay attention, the Old Testament has never been enough. And that conversion of the heart is necessary in order to become a true member of God's people. In the Gospel of Matthew, this exact scene has an added layer of detail. This is why it's so important to read the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together to get a fully orbed picture of what is happening in this time in history. Each one of the Gospel accounts is something of a theological biography. They are not in opposition to each other, but they do complement each other. And sometimes each account will, will demonstrate or provide a detail that maybe the other account does not add. So if you go to this exact scene in the Gospel of Matthew, here is an added detail. John sees the delegates coming to question him, and he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's a stern warning against entitlement and spiritual pride. Don't just assume that you're a member of God's people because you are Jewish. But the mystery delves deeper. One of the primary metaphors that God uses for his people throughout the entire Old Testament is that of a bride or a lover. God sees himself as the groom and Israel as his bride. God is jealous over the affections of his bride and is continually calling her to faithfulness and fidelity to him. And this theme is picked up by Jesus, both in his miracle at the wedding of Cana and also in his parable about the wedding feast. The theme is continued through the epistles of the New Testament church all the way to the end of Revelation. And in Revelation 19, verse 6, you hear, 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The gorgeous, apocalyptic imagery is of the church, the whole people of God taken together, being presented as a washed, baptized, purified bride for her husband, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God who was slain but who has risen. And so, when John baptizes people in the Jordan River, he is appropriating a physical sign that is meant to prepare people for a future reality. No wonder the delegates from Jerusalem did not understand who he was or what he was doing. If you think what I just explained sound a little bit complicated, think of how confusing it would have been in a first century context with no explanation, right? No wonder most people today do not understand what the church is or what she is doing. And this is not always the fault of outsiders. How could unbelieving people ever be expected to understand what the church is or what the church is doing when most Christians do not understand what the church is or what she is doing? In these three mistaken categories that the delegates are trying to put John the Baptist in, we we catch a glimpse of the three mistaken categories that most people tend to put the church in or Christians in. Let's just think about them one at a time. First, it's the category of Messiah or Christ. In this, we might see the category of the church as the hero of the story, the church as the solution to the world's problems. If you want to put it a little more crassly and perhaps a little more offensively, you might say, the church is here to make the world a better place. The church is here to address and to solve the world's problems. John looked and talked like a Messiah, and if he had said yes to their questions, they would have believed him and probably become his followers. John would have been a suitable replica of a Messiah. Not quite the real thing, but he looks an awful lot like it. Close enough. Very similar to the Chinese city of Tian Ducheng. You guys know about this city? The Chinese city of Tian Ducheng has built a replica of the city of Paris. It's a pretty remarkable architectural achievement, um, a life-size replica of the city of Paris. But it's a replica, similar to the real thing, but not exactly genuine. Visiting Tian Duchang will remind you of Paris, but you're still 6,000 miles away from the city of light. So you've got the replica, but it's not quite the real thing. Some of you will know this story. Bill Hybels, the founder of Willow Creek, this mega church outside of Chicago, famously said, the local church is the hope of the world. Now, tragically, later, he was accused of sexual harassment and the accusations were credible and he resigned in disgrace. And so his, if his statement about the local church is true, then I guess there's not a lot of hope for the world, right? Because what happens when a local pastor or a local church fails? if the local church is the hope of the world. The good news is he was not just wrong in his conduct towards women, he was also wrong in his theology. The local church is not the hope of the world. And so while we may grieve the sins of wayward pastors, we don't need to lose hope in the gospel because the shortcomings of a signpost do not diminish the glory of the city to which the sign points. 
The church is not here to make the world a better place. Let's qualify that statement. This is not to say the church does not labor for justice and the common good. She does. We do. But we do so as a sign of what is to come. We are never, ever, 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 ever the solution ourselves. We're merely a sign pointing towards the one who will renew and restore all things. It's very important to clarify the distinction between a sign and the thing itself. And one of the worst things the church could do would be to be a cheap replica of the kingdom of God. It's telling the world, we are Paris. And yet when the world visits, they go, this is not quite the real thing. How disappointing. The church as hero, the church as Messiah, the church as solution to the world's problems. Second, the church as Elijah, judge, harbinger of doom. This is another pre-existing category, isn't it? Many people expect the church to show up as moral judge, to congratulate the righteous and to condemn sinners. And many churches and Christians are all too ready to step right into that role. Yes, we say, we are glad to tell you where you've got it right and where you've got it wrong. We are glad to divide the sheep from the goats. Goats, we are glad to divide the good guys from the bad guys. And so the church becomes a kind of morality law enforcement and teaches her people to do the same. And those who are discouraged by immorality in society will see the church as the solution to the culture's problems and will flock to her, which is sort of like taking refuge from a fire by hiding in an oven, right? And the good news is that the church is not Elijah. John wasn't, and we're not either. We are not here as the final judge to forecast doom on the world. The third category would be the church as prophet, the church as teacher. This seems to be the most mild, right? The church is not the church a place for teaching. I mean, Redeemer does an awful lot of teaching. Some of you are looking at your watches, you're like, this sermon has already had too much teaching, right? <laughs> Redeemer kids classes, youth fellowship, CCO college ministry, sermons, J-term classes. The church is, is kind of like a, a part-time religious school for families, right? John taught, but he was not primarily a teacher. The church teaches, but is not primarily here to be a teacher. So folks tried to put John into their categories, and he refused to let them. And this made them confused, but it preserved the integrity of his calling. And all too often, society and even Christians themselves are ready to put the church into their categories. And so often the church, so desperate to be accepted and weary of being misunderstood, is ready to acquiesce. So sure, we're here to save the world. We're here to make the world a better place. Sure, we're here to judge the world and be the morality police. Sure, we're here to be a school for spiritual education. And so the church, the long lost wayward bride of Christ, forgets her place in the story. But even though she has forgotten, she remains the beloved of God. The church is the baptized body of Christ. No matter how many times she forgets it, she cannot be other than what she is. Baptism with water is a sign towards the real thing, baptism in the spirit. Leslie Newbegin, the British missiologist said, a sign is only the humblest possible servant of reality, but that is its service. It points away from itself to the one who is coming. So just think with me about the interplay between a sign and a fulfillment, right? The lesser and the greater, sign and fulfillment. You might have a sign that says Paris in 6,000 miles. 
but then you have actual Paris, the real place. A sign is just a billboard on the road, right? A city is the real thing. Or you might have John the Baptist, a sign, but then you might have Jesus, fulfillment. Or you might have water baptism, a sign, but you might have the indwelling of the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, the real thing. The church, just a sign. The coming kingdom of God, fulfillment, the real thing. The lesser always points to the greater. And the trajectory of the biblical story is that the sign eventually merges with the fulfillment. John baptized Jesus with water, and Jesus receives the Spirit descending on him as a dove. When the Holy Spirit later descends on the church at Pentecost, the sign of water baptism and the fulfillment of spirit baptism merge and become one. And this is borne out in the book of Acts and in the church throughout history, and we practice it today. This gives us tremendous hope because the church is a sign and the fulfillment is the coming kingdom of heaven. And one day the sign, the church, will meet the fulfillment and become one. The church is to be a sign pointing beyond itself to Jesus and to his coming kingdom. And friends, listen to me if you can. This is a tremendous comfort if you tend to find churches disappointing. Do you find church to be disappointing? I do. Do you? No church ever lives up to all that it intends to be or often claims to be. If you are, this is a a tremendous comfort if you tend to find churches disappointing because it explains your disappointment. You thought you were going to a city. All you got was a billboard on the road. It's not quite the same thing. It's also a challenge though. It's a challenge if your disappointment leads you to dismiss the church. Better pay attention to the sign if you want to get to the city. If you are, if you are baptized, if you are a member of the bride of Christ, then your life, listen if you can, is a preparation to meet your groom. And so your life is to be a sign. Your life is to be a sign. John the Baptist was the greatest human being who ever lived. And yet, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says to his followers and to us, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. In other words, at this point in history, greatest human being of all time, John the Baptist. And yet, he goes on, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The shape, the calling of the church that the season of Advent reminds us of is the church is to take up the role of John the Baptist, which means that each of us is to take up this role as well and to think of our lives, to conceive of our lives as something of a sign. What story are you in? What verse is your life contributing to the great drama? And if your life is a sign, to what does it point? So let's conclude here. How shall we be a sign? How shall we be assigned together and individually? Well, signs must be what? They must be visible if they are to be of any use at all. A private John the Baptist does no good preparing the way. And a private Christian does no good at all being a sign pointing to the coming kingdom. Signs must be visible. Confess your faith and refuse to allow yourself to be put into other people's categories. This is where you let others know publicly what kind of story you are in. You know, that word confession can mean a number of things, right? 
You can use that word confession in a number of ways. And for our purposes this morning, we will use it in all of the ways. So first, confession is simply to acknowledge the truth, to say what is true. Signs must be visible. And so you're, if you are, I know not everybody here is a Christian, but if you are a baptized follower of Jesus, you are to live your life publicly as a sign. Second, after signs are visible, they must not be replicas, meaning they must not be an imitation of the real thing. They must be genuine, which means in order to point towards the real Christ, you must first acknowledge that you are not the Christ. Now that might seem like a rather obvious thing to say, but the way in which you practice reminding all the people around you that you are not the savior is by telling the truth about yourself, particularly the dark spots. It means confessing your sin. This is where you let others know that you are not the hero of the story. And this takes practice. This is why we not only confess the truth about what we believe, we also confess the ugly truth about ourselves. And so we use confession in both of those ways. Now third, signs offer hope. This is where you not only confess what is wrong with you, you also confess your freedom. This is where your life demonstrates the goodness of what is to come. And therefore your life offers hope. You see, when people look at you, they should first see what is obviously publicly true and visible about you. This is a follower of Jesus. And when they look at you, they should also see this is someone who is honest about their own failures. They're not hiding anything. But then also when they look at you, they see someone who is free, who is actually not burdened and constrained and weighed down by their failures. And so they see the public truth as a follower of Jesus. They see the honest and open truth that you're a sinner. Then they see the glorious truth that you've been set free. And your confessing actually bears witness to all three of these things. So friends, what story are you in? What verse ought your life contribute to the great drama? If your life is a sign, to what does it point? Let's pray. Gracious Father, would you give us the grace to delve into the mystery this Advent season? As we prepare for your coming at Christmas, would you help us to contemplate well the mystery that we are preparing, Lord, to receive you and to truly convert, that we are preparing as a bride waiting for her husband, and that our lives are to be a sign that points all to you. May we do this and may we have the grace to do this well, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.